Case file number 4.7. Credit card fraud 1. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Emir. Yeah? When do you think the first credit card fraud was? The first credit card fraud? I'm assuming a long time ago, with the way you're asking. In a galaxy far, far away. No, no, it really had nothing <laughs> to do with Star Wars. I was surprised at how long ago it was, but I'm going to let you guess regardless. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ballpark and say 300 years ago? No. Way over? It, way over, because when okay. I say credit card fraud, what I mean is a credit token that had like a account number on it. Credit okay. was extended not by personal relationship, but by a token of some kind. Okay, then I'm going to I'm gonna say 1920-ish? Only about 20 years off. 1899. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So to set the stage, some transportation companies, basically cab services, although this was before motorized cabs, they started giving out these ride credit cards. Mm. Uh, they sent them out to bunch of folks the source i have didn't really tell me how that happened but this one guy who worked in livestock feed he got the credit card and pitched it because he didn't want to do anything to do with credit okay well somebody picked it up and started right. taking what were called hackies which were basically buggies with rubber tires which was the coolest thing at the time the article uh that i read equated them to like getting a limo really yeah, okay. and he rode them all over the place. Ran up in eighteen ninety nine dollars, twenty seven, twenty eight dollars worth of charges, which is over seven hundred dollars today. Probably closer to a thousand, but I, I didn't do the math from when the article was written to now on the inflation thing. Right. Yeah. So he was stuck for somewhere between about maybe seven fifty and a grand, and he was taking like streetcars and stuff because he didn't live on credit or anything. He was a reasonably modest dude. And mm-hmm. this guy was taking the, the basically limos everywhere, skip town. <laughs> he actually ended up having to pay it, which I find very interesting because hmm. with a credit card agreement, you have to sign a contract. He obviously didn't. So I don't know how right, that yeah. happened. But one of the important points here is that a lot of consumer protections and, and law regarding this was actually put into law in in about 1970 oh really yeah and it used to be the reason why they always had you sign the back of your card no matter what was Mm -hmm. that that was assumed to be part of the contractual signing off on it that you actually got the card and signed off on it right but nowadays the contract you have is is pretty much accepted by all all the lawyers 
Uh, so if you if you like me put check ID on on the signature block, you're not mm-hmm. somehow evading responsibility for the charges, which isn't my intent in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit about the card itself. Mm-hmm. So magnetic tape in the 60s was one of the mediums of storage. It's kind of the up and coming medium of storage. Back in the dark days when uh, dinosaurs roamed the earth, by that I mean mainframes. Um, Mm -hmm. And you had paper tape and the punch cards that, have you ever actually seen a punch card in person? Like I have have seen a punch card in person because one of the uh, essays I worked with at one point um, used to uh, use punch cards. And so he he brought brought one because I was like, like do you have one just laying around that you show me because like it's very this is very interesting it's like seeing a dinosaur bone so my dad actually used to program those and mm-hmm. when i was a kid apparently some parent dropped off a whole pile of these cards and my art teacher used them for various art projects oh um, really <laughs> so I, I was occurring to me that like you know, I was definitely old enough to see them as a child. Right. But I was like, wait, you're a little bit younger than me and didn't have techie parents. So you might not have seen this in person. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have a computer until I think I was around 14, 15-ish. Um, and the first one was like the the oldest quote unquote technology for me is uh, dial up and those um, the, the big ass floppies. I forget what the dimensions were. The the five and a quarter. Yeah, five and or a quarter. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which weren't the biggest big ass floppies, but they're the biggest ones oh, you're really? likely to have at home. Yeah, uh, I believe okay, that I they had know. eight inch floppies or ten inch floppies Jeez. for like professional systems way back in the day. But those came after magnetic tape. Right. Right. The cool thing back in the 60s. There was paper tape and paper punch cards for certain kinds of things, but magnetic tape was the was the new hotness. Yeah. So we knew how to encode things on that magnetic tape, but all we had was the magnetic tape on a spool. So an IBM researcher in 1969 by the name of Frank Perry was like, if I could put this on a card, I now have like a token that, that, that has digital stuff in it, encoded on it, and that could right. be useful. He he was right about that, as it turns out. Um, (laughs) And he tried like a billion different adhesives to get it to work and couldn't Mm -hmm. get it to work. Either it wasn't strong enough or it messed with the magnetic magnetic properties or it wasn't readable because of the goop or whatever. Mm, Okay. And he complained about this to his wife. His wife was like, have you tried ironing it on? So he did. And that totally worked. Damn. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Shit. Props to her. Like, I know. She's I mean, like, like, you moron, like just iron it. Like, what the hell? I reminded me of the story of Teflon, the guy who who figured out how to use Teflon, figured it out because his wife said, hey, that that slick stuff that you use on your fishing tackle deal so it doesn't get tangled. Could you put it on a pan? Yeah. And that's how we got nonstick cookware. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> women behind the scenes doing all this technology. Yeah. You wonder why you wonder why we're trying to hire more of them now. <laughs> But for a long time, credit cards, like I physically remember this happening. In fact, at one of my early retail jobs, we had this as a backup. They didn't run through um, through the mag strike and sending the transaction out. You'd actually have a carbon copy slip and an imprint machine that would imprint the, the raised card numbers on your credit card onto the slip. Okay. That is, that is actually the reason why they have raised, why a lot of cards, but not all cards nowadays have raised numbers. 
was to be compatible with the with the uh, imprint system. Interesting. Okay. But the card itself, the physical card, was much easier to copy than the mag stripe. Right. So that mag stripe actually has well nowadays it has can have three tracks of data, but for the most part we're talking about two tracks of data. Mm, track okay. one, the track one data is seventy nine characters, has the credit card number, the, 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 the PAN, and some identifying information about the, uh, the account holder, their surname, suffix, first name, title separated, or the expiration date, stuff like that. Hmm, okay, and okay. so all of that data is part of the account data that they actually want to record. Mm-hmm. And then after about the 46th character, Sorry, my, my, I'm looking at a diagram and I don't have the exact number. Um, <laughs> is some verifying information like the CVV number or the CVC number, depending on what system, what area you're talking about. But like the, the number on the back of your card, it's also right. encoded in the mag stripe. But mm-hmm. after like that, that uh, 44th bit, that information is not supposed to be stored. You're supposed to use it to validate. The card has the number that's there. Okay. But you're not supposed to store the rest of that data. Gotcha. It just checks against what you, you put in yeah. and then dumps it. But the original track one data, the spec for that was actually for the airline industry. They specified the track one format. Hmm, track okay. two came a little bit later on, and that was by the payment card industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually shorter. It's 40 characters. And at about the 28th character, 29th character is like just the account number and expiration date. Right. The shorter one was built actually for modem credit card authorization stuff back in the days when everybody, when people used dial-up modems for credit card authorization. In fact, in a lot of places where they don't have internet access, they still use this method. Okay. And credit card machines nowadays will actually compare the track one and track two data. Some of the early copy attacks would concentrate on one or the other track data, usually the track two data. Okay. Because why do everything if, if half-assing it will actually get you past the authentication procedure, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, back in 2012, OpenSecurityResearch.com blog has uh, deconstructing credit card data, which has got a bunch of Python 2.7 code, but mm. Python code about using readers and encoding data and stuff like that. That basically breaks down everything you need to know about writing MagStripe stuff. Suitable for if you're interested in exactly what's going on there. Probably not suitable if you want to do a carding setup, because I'll bet you you can, if you have a nefarious bone in your body and would like to violate all of those laws, there's probably better stuff you can pay for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not that we advocate that. In fact, we are defensive guys. And uh, I think that, I don't know if we've said it explicitly, but I firmly believe that you will have a much better life making six figures in security in security expertise and being able to sleep at night without worrying about getting caught than uh, making a big hit. In fact, we might even met one of our anti-heroes for the a little bit later that we're going to talk about said a very similar thing that he uh, he always worked harder on his scams than he did on any legit job he ever had. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. Doing crimes at stress level. I mean, stress does horrible things to your body, but I can't imagine like that amount of stress. They're always looking over your shoulder. So. Yeah. 
So we talk about in credit card fraud. Main deal, there's a few ways of acquiring credit cards. One of them is skimming. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's two basic kinds of skimming. And we might actually do an episode only on skimming because it ends up going really deep. And we're just going to go over kind of the top line on this stuff. One is an in-place skimmer, which is maybe a piece that fits over an existing um, card slot. Right. Krebzone Security actually has a whole catalog of stuff that's tagged as skimming of a bunch of different kinds of skimmer artifices that have been found a little bit after where our story ends people started they started trying to to anti-skimming things into into readers and kiosks and stuff and these guys would like 3d print their own things replace them with a reader inside even if they were like transparent plastic oh really yeah um okay atm skimmers which usually had some way of acquiring a pin Mm -hmm. you had Malware-infected ATMs, which would just read out stuff and you don't have to have any skimmer hardware, which goes back to some of the stuff you were talking about when you were talking about Barnaby Jack. Right, yeah. I think we mentioned uh, that that was a possibility, like not just jackpotting it, but um, using it as a way of acquiring more ATM stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Card information. Because he showed showed to pull, like he was pulling the track data um, during his demo. Uh, One skimmer that they found would text over the cell network, all of the data. No, oh, really? Damn. Yeah. And then the one that I didn't realize was true, I must have forgotten this or just missed it, but there's such a thing as an insert skimmer that actually fits into the card slot of some kinds of, uh, of card readers that will hmm. read just as you do your, as you would do your dip. Okay. And it's just, it, it, they're so thin and the tolerances are wide enough that you that they could actually do that without significantly being noticeable. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because like I've I've always seen like pictures of the, the main like the bigger skimmers that go over the top of yeah. the you know stuff like that, and that's why there's always those like little security tags on them now at gas stations and whatnot. But yeah. And again, Krebs compiled a whole bunch of different things. His articles go from like 2009 onward of stuff that was found. So some of the stuff. It goes back that as far as we're we're talking about, but it didn't end at this point. In fact, it got a lot more sophisticated after this point. Okay. But the other way of, of doing it were handheld skimmers, which fit basically in the palm of your hand. Somebody that gets physical access to your card, like a waiter, mm. could skim your card and then run a transaction. Right. That might sound a little ridiculous, but there's a wired article and a DC uh, or a, a Washington Post article of a DC restaurant skimming ski uh, conspiracy or a conspiracy in the DC in a few in a handful of DC restaurants of waiters doing skimming of Clyde's and Gallery Gallery Place MS Grill uh, 401 restaurant along with uh, some uh, with a uh, Maryland Carabas and the Gaylord Hotel. Oh really? Um, yeah, hmm. it was like uh, I, I think a dozen or two dozen folks um, that were all involved in that they were getting mm. paid based on kind of the how swanky the place was right um, yeah the, the swankier the place the more the more that each that each skin would be worth for the waiter or waitress um but like totally skim hand it off boom you made you made 10 bucks a skim and mm-hmm. they got somebody's credit card and they got 
somebody's credit card, which is why I'm a big advocate of what's common a lot more outside of the US nowadays, although we're seeing it more and more in the US of wireless terminals to do credit card chip transactions that, that waiters can bring to the table. I think that that's a great piece of technology that I would love yeah. to see more often. I, I first encountered that, yeah, in Germany um, when they brought it over to the table. And I was like, what what the hell is this? Yeah, because I'm yeah. so used to, you know, throwing the card down, they run off of it. You hope they aren't doing something with your card and then bring it back. Right. And we're not going to talk, we're not going to talk at all in this episode about the chip. It's a good thing. And there's some stuff about it, but our story here ends before the chip. Mm, okay. So we start in 2002-ish, maybe a little earlier than that, with mm -hmm. the Shadow Crew. They were an online marketplace for credit card stuff, card numbers, where you could buy card numbers, people offering authentication services. It wasn't a marketplace as much as kind of a bulletin board. Right. But what did, what did make it a market is that each person who was participating had to have a reputation with the site admins. Okay. So like, has this person produced good credit card numbers in the past? Have they, you know, taken the money and run on another transaction, been a ripper in the, in the nomenclature of the time? Stuff right. like that. Uh, how reliable was their, was their stuff? Which is really important. Confidence in a market is really important to making that market work and you're not paying kind of an, an extra risk fee built into every transaction. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the admins for this, mods or admins, this is one of those things that's, that, that, that's a little sketchy. Some people said he was, he was an admin of the site. Some people say he was a mod of the site. His lawyer says he wasn't even a mod of the site. <laughs> was, was a guy named Kim Taylor, uh, went by the handle MacGyver. Oh, okay. Well, so he and a guy he was partnered up with for a little bit was a guy named Dave Thomas, who's actually our anti-hero here. Uh, and he went by the handle El Mariachi. Wait, quick tangent. Isn't Dave Thomas also the name of the guy that started Wendy's? Yes, it, yes, it was. Yes, it was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he had a redheaded daughter. Uh, but, <laughs> but as is tradition in our podcast, although it hasn't come up a ton, we try and refer to people by their handles when they're available. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, having a handle is 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 important. Yeah. As, as they said in the movie. So El Mariachi and MacGyver were working with this with this guy, the big buyer. His handle was Big Buyer. He was a Russian or Ukrainian. And like we don't know a ton about him. He did have a reputation for like being able to get the last little bit out of a out of an account or out of a credit card. So like if there was a hundred or fifty bucks left on the card after buying a big ticket item, he'd find something to buy that used up the rest of it. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. That was just, that was that was like his rep. Mm. And a lot of this information, by the way, comes from a Wired article that was mostly from Dave Thomas Sel Mariachi's point of view. So. I believe quite a bit of this is true. We can't verify a lot of the veracity of this stuff, um, mm -hmm. even after the fact. But we know that Wired did, did some verification. We know some stuff that happened after the fact. It's at least pretty close. Right. So El Mariachi and MacGyver get rolled up. Law enforcement nabbed them with this meet with Big Buyer. MacGyver went to prison. El Mariachi 
he, he ended up becoming an FBI stooge. Mm, the FBI okay. turned him around and said, well, he said when he got captured, like, hey, I can give you a million dollar case, million plus dollar case involving Russians right now. And I think it was the Secret Service that was originally contacted, wasn't really interested, but the FBI mm-hmm. did eventually get interested in this. And the FBI said, okay, we're going to pay your expenses to live in Seattle and participate in a bunch of Carter stuff. This is an operation where we want to understand how the carding community and marketplaces work. We're not necessarily trying to bust people on every little thing that happens. Right. And that kind of thing had been done before. That was not a major departure of operations for the FBI uh, Mm -hmm. to do something like that. So El Mariachi actually went in for this. He thought, hey, I can turn this around and I can you I can kind of double dip on this by using them paying me to to do this stuff to gather information for a book that I can write about this whole thing and they're paying me to research the book that I wanted to do anyway great yeah yeah, exactly sure so he goes in and gets like doubles down on his involvement in the Carter community he already had a a rep in the Carter community had written some good articles on the forums and stuff about how to how, how to do various things, card application fraud, stuff like that. Right. Okay. So he actually managed to get in on a, on a few things because he he was basically talking to everybody and he was basically touching everything. Mm-hmm. But MacGyver was one of the guys that ran Shutter Crew. Kept, you know, saying, "Hey, you must have flipped because I went to jail and you didn't." Yeah. Good. Uh... <laughs> As it turns out, not wrong. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, was, wait a second. It was, it was constantly a thing that, that El Mariachi had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And over time, it just ended up getting to be too much. Just, there was too much going on at Shadow Crew. Uh, one instance flipped it over the edge, and he was banned from Shadow Crew. Mm, okay. So he started a site. Again, the FBI totally financed all of this called <laughs> thegrifter.net. So he set this up and it actually ended up being a really important part of the Carter community at this point. And this we're around 2003 or so at this point. And we know because of some other stuff, some stuff that happened subsequently that the secret service was running an operation at basically the same time. Okay. And El Mariachi believes that the guy who took over for MacGyver on shadow crew was the guy that was their guy. (laughs) <laughs> but apparently in him talking with his with his agent handler mm-hmm. he was like so who's everybody after and the other law enforcement operations and they're like and he's like you they're all after you because he was talking <laughs> to everybody and he was on everybody's lips yeah <laughs> yeah so just around this time the come up comes up with this new carter site called carter planet and I should note on all of this stuff, these were websites that were on the web. I didn't find any information one way or the other on whether or not they were indexed by any of the search engines at the time, but this was prior to the dark web as we know it, mm-hmm. encrypted Tor.onion sites, stuff like that. Right. So these were straight on the web. So they opened up Carter Planet and uh, the Russians, uh, Dmitry Glubov script, and Pavel Kistov, 
were listed in this. And there were a couple other folks that were that had been listed in other articles reading about kind of the aftermath of this stuff. Hmm, okay. So important to realize that there were several people involved because what Carter Planet brought to the Carter world that wasn't re- that didn't really exist was 24-7 operation, 24-7 service. Mm, okay, gotcha. They had a large enough crew and they had enough operational tempo where they could do things in real time, 24-7. Hmm, gotcha. Again, another thing we haven't really talked about, but one thing that I kind of spread around in my professional guys is I have a sophistication model from zero to five of the sophistication of an operator. And one of the very important points is having an infrastructure and being able to operate continuously. That's a mm-hmm. big separation between lower level execution and the next and the next tier. So in my mind, just like the ability to do ransomware as a service, the ability to operate 24-7 was actually a significant change in the um, how da- relatively dangerous the Carter community got at that point. Right. Yeah, yeah. In about 2004, they pulled the plug on everything. Operation Firewall, the Secret Service operation, the FBI took all of these sites down. It was oh, okay. Carter Planet, Shadow Crew, Dark Prophets, all went down all at the same time. Okay. And a lot of people got jailed and extradited mm-hmm. and otherwise jailed. Uh, there was one guy, and I'm sorry I didn't actually put this guy's name in my notes, that got arrested and then got extradited back to the U.S., and got right. extradited to someplace else in the U.S. And like uh-huh. he, he, between all the things that he did and all the places he was accused, before he got sentenced, he had already served about 12 years. Wow. Like he was in just jail and being extradited from place to place. And then he got sentenced to 18 years in prison. On top now, of the 12 he served, technically. Well, I mean, some of it might have been applied as time served, but not mm-hmm. all of it, because not all of it was in the, was in the jurisdiction where he was convicted. Oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> so Operation Firewall, which is the one we kind of have the best information on the actual legal implications, netted under 40 people. Some reports say mm-hmm. 28, some reports say 38, but it was like under 40 people. And the analysis was basically had zero impact on the actual carding community, at least in terms of how much damage they were do- they continue to do. Like the trend line of how much credit card fraud was happening did not change at all based on this. So this really? huge multi-year operation, they flipped multiple law enforcement or, uh, agencies, flipped multiple people. This was a relatively big operation, mm-hmm. but they didn't take down that many people and it didn't actually affect the credit card fraud going forward. Damn. Yeah. So all that, all that time and effort and like yep. didn't make a dent really. Right. And I mean, and I'm not necessarily faulting law enforcement here, but it's important to say that that structural changes in the technology, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit more in episode two of the credit card fraud series, technological changes seem to have a more significant impact. Behavioral mm-hmm. changes in the way that things are managed have more of an impact than law enforcement trying to police things as they're happening. Hmm, okay. As a security person, preventative controls, good design, generally 
tends to be much more effective than trying to catch people red-handed. Right. And I, yeah. And I, yeah, and I think that that, ex- I think that that extends and I just think that this is a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of our listeners, and I'm sure you have heard of PCI. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So PCI as a set of standards started in 2004. Before that, credit card companies had some of their own standards. The one that you'll see on PCI's site is the Visa standards, but they didn't have a comprehensive set of rules. And uh, they're there and it's way better than what was before. I don't want to slam Mm -hmm. them too hard, but they're not proud of the original ones. And I say that because or at least I assume that they're not very proud of those, those ones. Because if you go in the document archive of previous versions of the standard on the PCI DSS website, right. it doesn't go any further back than 2.0. <laughs> so I did manage to get a copy of the 1.1 standard, I believe it is, which was published in 2008. Okay. Now we know in 2006, they added some addendum to clarify some language, including saying that running a secure network including included having a firewall. Oh, yeah, that's always a good thing. Yeah. And 2008, they added the standard of saying you had to run antivirus. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think they were a little late to the party on the antivirus especially. The firewall is maybe a little bit more debatable because, honestly, at 2000, 2001, was the first time I was at a network that had a full-fledged active firewall in front of it, and, and, and uh, even in that case, there was some argument by certain people about putting it in front of certain parts of the network. Okay. So I that I think that that's a that can be argued a little bit better, mm-hmm. but antivirus. Uh, <laughs> I actually have my yeah. notes for uh, 2004 original recipe 10, 2006 extra crispy now with firewalls. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Nice. So again, I got a copy of the one one stuff and I was reading it over. And some of the things that I think are pretty important, they talk about the structure of the card and the information that's in it. And they explicitly call out what is a credit card record and what needs to be secured to these standards. Right. And, I, and just so that I didn't get confused between ver- different versions, I didn't look at any of the later ones. I've seen them past. I just, you know, I tried to concentrate on this one while I was doing research. If it's got an account number, it's credit card record. If it's anything else, it's not a credit card. If it's got the other information, but no credit, but no PAN, no primary account number, it's not mm-hmm. a credit card record. So at least they're defining that. And there's a bunch of standards about what that data is and 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 what you you like you need a time for for transactions and stuff like that. And um, I also talk about basic network security. You have to have a DMZ. You have to fo- have a firewall. And this one's again from 2008. Um, okay. Yeah. But interestingly, patching is not in there. Really? Yeah. Operating system patching and stuff is not in there. I have some personal experience in the 2006 to 2008 time period with payment card stuff. That was the last time I was really dealing with payment card stuff. Right. Um, and I might have mentioned that I worked a fairly major breach in that time period. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I felt then, and reading now, I doesn't really change my opinion that. They had biased a system to a, a, a document that 
I mean, there, there's real recommendations here. There's, there's real standards here that require you to do some decent stuff. But it really felt like they were trying to say, if you made an effort, you qualified, rather than being <laughs> really trying to set the bar really high. They, 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 they kind of brought it to a level that they thought was, at, was maybe adequate, mm-hmm. but didn't exclude a ton of people. Right, right. I mean, I could see where they're coming from. But it also, from a consumer point of view, feels a little weak. And I should mention that there are four levels of PCI compliance. Level four is you do under 20,000 credit card transactions per year, all the way up to level one. Now, a lot of these things in level four and at the level four level are recommendations and everything above level four, these things are requirements. Okay. And at this time period, Something like I believe sixty plus percent of the of credit card frauds was actually happening at level four processors, at the level four level. So, the fact that those standards hadn't been put down at those level lower level folks did have an impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the tail end of this era, two thousand eight, there was the TJX breach, which right. was a big deal because it was. 60 Minutes did actually, I think, two different, I know I saw, I found one in my research, but I believe that there were two different 60 Minutes articles about this. Um, and in one, in one of the article, in one of the, the, the pieces, the one that I, that I watched, they had somebody walk through what could have happened and knowing what they were able to find through doing their own assessment. And they basically war drive to store and realized that it had open wireless. And okay, they were okay. able to they were able to discover enough from that to be concerned. And right, yeah. if all you're doing is essentially the recommendations here, where there was a where you just have a simple stub DMZ architecture, which again was pretty common at the time, you'd have what we used to call the soft creamy center network, where everything that wasn't on the border was all at the same security zone level, and everything could access everything else. Mm-hmm. So you could very easily see a system where store to the mothership directly to the soft creamy center. Yeah, yeah. They got act pretty good. It was over 40 million customer records. It was mm-hmm. a big deal. It took years and years for that to be for that to be resolved in the legal system. Although I did check the Fortune 500s for that period of time and before and after the the breach at TJX their gross income didn't change very much. Oh, really? Yeah, no, just... it, it, it went up basically on the trend line. Just, yeah. <laughs> Which is a little interesting because the way we found out about it, the way the whole news world found out about it is through their 10K filing. Mm, right. Which is talking about a material weakness in a company from an SEC perspective. And yeah. again, this was before <laughs> mandatory reporting r- rules or ensconced in law, which are relatively recent. It's pretty amazing uh, to me, like how some of these companies can flounder so badly mm-hmm. and hate, like get really no hit. Like, like Blizzard had all those um, mm-hmm. lawsuits pop up in California and stuff and their stock price and everything like dipped a little bit for a day and then just continued on as normal. Well, so our next example, our last example is Heartland Payment Systems. They had an even bigger there's over 100 million records. Mm. The thing about them is this was reported in 2009. 
they were PCI compliant at the time. Oh, really? Yeah. PCI DSS stands for Payment Card Industry Data Security Standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should have said that earlier when we started with the PCI <laughs> stuff, but I, I just I, I just remember. So they definitely got, or ever all reports say that they got got through a SQL injection and subsequent malware. And the reports I saw said they were notified by MasterCard and Visa. But at that point, they tried to do the right thing. They notified customers and wrote the whole mea culpa, and they did take a hit in business. It's non-trivial. Mm. And they did a lot of work to get their network security back in running. But this was this stink, and it was the biggest one at oh. the time, biggest publicly disclosed breach. I don't know that we know whether or not anything bigger managed to stay secret or not, especially from this time period. Right. Yeah. But like they tried to do the right thing and did take the hit for it and did take a hit for it. What are you might not know this? Like, what mm-hmm. are the penalties associated to? non-disclosure you know what i don't know off the top of of my head i mean obviously inside the government which is where you and i do most of our work nowadays Uh it's inside the house so the penalties are are are, don't need to be criminal necessarily because it's all it can all be administratively done um even though there are laws that make it happen i didn't read up on it for this one i think that it's it might be an sec thing Uh and i don't know what the penalties are yeah, I, I just hope it's more than a fine because that, that seems to be how these things generally go is like, oh, you didn't you didn't tell us X, Y, and Z to disclose it. We're gonna fine you a whole hundred like thousand yeah. dollars. And these companies are like, well, we make billions, so we don't care. In contrast, um, the Sarbanes Oxley stuff did make individual uh, corporate officers liable for issues with their with their financial disclosures. Mm, okay which can have something to do with infosec stuff mm-hmm. so in that case and if it if, if it ends up being a sarbanes oxley related thing the individual c-level of executives can be personally fined rather than it being a company fine okay okay yeah that, that's better yeah they can be held liable yeah but whether or not those things actually get applied is another thing because i don't remember hearing of any case where that did happen all that bears some research and if i find one of those maybe there's an episode in just that story right yeah again the breach i worked was about that time and uh one thing that i remember specifically when going back to they were pc guy compliant at the time was Mm -hmm. the processor that we were working with one of the things that we did was we got a vpn tunnel in place between our network and their network And I remember having an argument with their networking folks about why we needed the tunnel. Really? Yeah. And I mean, this was the the processor of of my client. Um, Mm -hmm. So like they were theoretically the experts on this side. Mm -hmm. Right. So that ends basically our story of that era where we end at basically the, the, the PCI one era ending. Okay. But there's a little bit of a coda to the Heartland payment system thing. Hmm. In 2014, Heartland Payment Systems issued kind of a warranty if they ever got breached again. We're trying to get the stink off of, of the 100 million record breach off of them. Okay. So okay. they issued this warranty. Okay. It's about a year later. <laughs> 
Everybody says that their network security was better. And I have no reason to doubt. Right. Yeah. Somebody walked into their office, stole several laptops. Really just strolled right in. Just strolled right in, which Mm -hmm. honestly could possibly happen to anybody. Yeah. I've seen examples of it. People, especially now uh, with COVID, a lot more people are working from home. Those laptops don't stay in your building anymore. The physical security side is a lot less reliable, which is why we encrypt drives, right? 2014 was not an unreasonable time to expect drive encryption, especially if you had customer data on it. Yeah, Yeah. they didn't. Um, (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So between warranty claims and and lawsuits, it cost them over $100 million. So... uh, they got got twice, although the thing that I said at the incident I was involved in, when people asked, how could it possibly get this bad anytime mm. we talked about it, is <laughs> you're playing a game, you're playing, you're rolling the dice. The amount of money that you might lose is multiplied by the percent chance that you think that you're going to get got and have to deal with the legal consequences because the legal consequences because of the lawyers and all the consultants you have to hire and everything are a lot right, more yeah. expensive than just paying the damages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Honestly, you can probably get away with damages too. Mm-hmm. But like, if that's a 1% chance and it's going to cost you $100 million, mm-hmm. then that is a million dollar risk versus increasing your IT budget by however much. And if you're a big yeah, company, a million dollars does not go very far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have personally been entrusted to implement systems that cost a million dollars just on the face of it. That million dollars can go away real fast in a large organization. So they're playing the actuarial game about against their risks going to what you were saying. Nobody pays much of a fine for any of this stuff. It doesn't hurt Mm -hmm. their, for most folks, it doesn't hurt their business very much. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a cool one too. Like, you know, some pharma companies and other stuff like that where, it's like, okay, well, we know this can cause this detrimental health effect or like, you know, like mm-hmm. our car has like, you know, a 5% chance to like maim someone, but like, you know, we sell X amount of units and it would cost, you know, $5 billion to like replace them all. But, it, you know, we can, we can, we can handle the lawsuits um, that would come our way. The, yeah. The, they don't bear the full cost of the risk. So there is a negative externality in the system for those economics dorks out there. Uh, mm. And if you don't know the word externality, you might want to look it up. It's a useful <laughs> term to have around. So that's pretty much part one. I wish I felt more able to talk about the incident I was involved with, because I, I think I learned a lot about the real world of, of how this stuff works. But I would personally be too identifiable. And while I don't think I'm, we're going to m- maintain our pseudonyms forever, I don't want to make it easy on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.